How does a society go from dedicated to serving the Lord to being corrupted? In our own country, we look at how we were 60 years ago. God was a much bigger part of our society and our culture. We're shaped by our love for and our obedience to God. Things that would shock our society 60 years ago are barely even a blip anymore. So how do we get from that point to where we are now? Because much of the same thing is happening here in Ezra chapter 9. The social norms and the customs of the Jews, they had strayed from them. They had gone away from the commandments of God. Some of the things that he had spoken to Moses. And Ezra apparently has seen more biblical behavior in Babylon than he sees here in Jerusalem. So how did this happen in the 60 years since the temple was completed? Now we say 60 because when the temple got stalled and the prophets came out and they prophesied to the people to get going on the building, uh, none of those prophets rebuked them for any of these sins. So we are left to assume that none of those sins were going on at the time that the temple was restarted until it was completed. So somewhere after the temple was completed, until this time with Ezra, some 60 years later, this corruption had worked its way in. And so we want to take a look at what happened there so we can understand what has happened here and what can also happen in our lives. Last week we looked at live as big as you talk. That big talk is not faith talk unless it also comes with some faith actions. There are some Christians, they have big talk, but they have no actions that go along with it. And so, it's just talk. Our trust should be in God for deliverance in trouble and not for deliverance from trouble. A lot of people, they want to believe God for no trouble at all in their life. That's not what we're going to have down here. And if the enemy can get you to expect no trouble, then whenever trouble shows up, you're thinking God let you down or that you have done something wrong. And so you are fertile ground for those kind of thoughts coming in. We gave the example of those who expected deliverance when in trouble and those who expected deliverance from trouble. So we could see the difference in that. But that's here. Let's pick up at Ezra chapter 9 and verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, these things, of course, being they had the three days they rested, then they went through and they weighed all the stuff that was going on. That was the fourth day. So we might say this is the fifth day. Ezra has been in town for maybe five days, or this is the fifth day that this is going on. I would assume it's not much later than that. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, now notice it's the leaders that come to him saying, that's important for us to keep note of, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. That's a pretty comprehensive list there. For they, they being the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, these are the groups. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that they, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. It's a whole lot in two verses. The hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. They have been leaders in this sin. Now, who was it that came to them? It was the leaders. So you have some leaders that apparently have stayed away from that and they're going to bring this to Ezra's attention and other leaders who have compromised themselves in this area. But there are some leaders who are watching this go on. There are some leaders who are watching other leaders, other priests and other Levites and the people fall into this sin. But they have kept themselves from this sin. I would assume that they have probably talked to some people about this and tried to persuade others from going that way, but that does not appear, apparently seem to be working. So they may have addressed it, 
these leaders that approached Ezra, they may have addressed it with the leaders and the leaders weren't going to listen and maybe those leaders were more prominent positions. Maybe they had uh, some kind of supremacy there. Uh, whatever the reason was, it didn't seem to work. Very likely they were ignored in the things that they were saying. You could say maybe they were compromised themselves in some other areas other than these, maybe beside the marriage thing, they had compromised themselves in some other places. And so because of those compromises, either they didn't feel like we could bring this up or they were, it wasn't received because of that. But we're not told any of those things. Nothing like that comes out. We're just told that they approached Ezra about this. I guess they're thinking, Ezra, you're new in town. You have a lot of stock here. Uh, perhaps... You coming in and saying something about this will help. So maybe they even felt guilty for something that they had done themselves and they just didn't even bring it up. Now God warned against intermarriage with the surrounding Canaanite tribes in Exodus 34, 11 through 16 and Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. I'm not going to read them tonight. You can always go back there and check them out if you want to see. God's concern with the intermarriage was not the mixing of races. It was the, or, or even peoples, it was the mixture of religious beliefs. That is solely his thing because all through history, we see that when people from other nations, even some of the Canaanite tribes, when they came to, to Jesus, they were allowed in. Rahab, of course, being one of the foremost on, on that, she uh, submitted herself to God and she was not only brought into the tribes, but she was also brought into the very lineage of Jesus. So he has no problem with the mixture of races. And of course, God is behind the creation of all the races that are on the uh, planet there. So they're all, all people of God. And if they repent of their sins, they would certainly be welcomed into the family of God. But if they will not forsake serving the gods that they served in their lands, then no, you're not welcome. We don't want that sort of thing going on kind of like if you were going to bring somebody into your house because they needed a place to stay and you say all right you can come into our house but this is what how we operate in this house we don't do this and we do this and you may lay down some ground rules and if they won't don't want to do those ground rules well uh then it may not work out <laughs> and and you you may say well you know we, we'd like to try and help you out but these are some ground rules. Well, these are even bigger ground rules for God because he says if you let this come in, they will take you away from the things of God. Solomon, of course, was a great example of that, but he was not the only one. There were other times in Israel's history where that had gone on. So, there's quite a group of peoples that are mentioned here. These are not just nations that are mentioned. They have, they're actually saying they're people from all these nations serving the gods that they serve have come in, married into these situations, and I'm sure that uh, they are compromising the people in the, the things that they're doing. So the leaders are involved, and they're not just involved a little. He said, they're some of the prominent ones in this. Now, since they single out the leaders, my thinking goes to this. The leaders had found a way to use alliances in marriage with some of the neighboring uh, places, I'll give you my daughter, I'll give you my son in marriage, to somehow work an advantage for them either politically or monetarily. That there was some profit, there was some gain that they would be able to have, which would give them more money, which in a lot of societies, in a lot of places, the more money you have, the more power you have, the more you're able to hang on to power, and they may have used it for this way, and it may be why the leaders that are not going in this direction are having a difficult time overcoming this. So we're left to wonder about that, but that would sort of seem to be one of the things that we've seen in the past. These leaders are leading, but they're leading in the wrong direction. And the people are following in this wrong direction. They're seeing the leaders go in this particular way, and so then they're going. They may not get the same gain that the leaders are getting, but they're following in the same direction. So he said, uh, let me read this, read this again. Uh, for they, verse two, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders 
and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So I've taken some, that is, uh, that is some in total, or some of each of these people. So I uh, can't really tell you which way it's going, because you can go either way. Either they have taken some of their daughters, or they have taken some from each of these peoples. But either way, you get the idea what is going on. Now, it is likely brought up as a problem because of the worship practices of the foreign uh, husbands and wives. And those worship practices are being brought in. And um, I, gave, I gave you a little blank here. I'll let, give you to fill in. What is tolerated apart from the normal will eventually be assimilated into the normal. This is what the enemy is always trying to do. And you look at this in the past... And we can see this in all the places in history. You can see this in some of China's history when they were getting into the abuses of people. You can see it in the Soviet's history when they were getting into the abuse of people. You can get it into Nazi Germany's when they were getting into the abuse of people. And the list just keeps on going on. What happens is they get society to tolerate some things that they would not have before. And once they get them to tolerate it, then they can assimilate it into the normal. And so what was tolerated in Nazi Germany, what was tolerated in Soviet Russia, became the normal. And they didn't have as much opposition from it. So that's why we want to be careful of the things that we tolerate in this country. And certainly we have seen that because we have tolerated certain things, then um, these things have been assimilated in. I was reading something from uh, Brother Rick Renner and he didn't mention who it was. But he mentioned that somebody had given a prophetic word that in the coming years, and this was a long time ago, and this is back when it was abhorred, but he said uh, in the coming years, people, Christians, will allow homosexual acts on TV to be on in their home. And the, when this person said it, and said, all oh, this has to be a false prophet. How in the world can you let this kind of thing stand? There's no way that that's going to happen. And now, of course, we can see what's, what's going on with these things. The world wants to get you to tolerate it. Right now, there's a whole lot of pressure that if you won't, do not tolerate what is told to be accepted, what is told that you need to just tolerate and just stop making a fuss about, and pretty soon that thing has just become assimilated into the culture. And it becomes normal. Now, back when they first arrived, they rejected the help offered from those who dwelt in the land. Remember that? The people from the land wanted to come over. Hey, we want to help you build this temple. And they said, no. <laughs> no. We're not going to bring in any, any foreign help on this. They were people who worshipped other gods. These were people who just yesterday were sacrificing to some foreign god. And they want to come over and help us with the temple. No. We're not having you come in here and help us work, uh, build the temple. We're just doing this ourselves. Then they got mad at them, and then they were opposition to them. So they were not really trying to help. They were probably trying to get on the inside and corrupt those things. But they, uh, this was their attitude when they first came in. They're going to reject that kind of help from the, uh, the people of the land, the people that were around them. Now they're intermarrying with them. And they're not, they're not intermarrying with those that have rejected their idolatrous practices and received... Uh, the worship of Jehovah. They're just intermarrying with them uh, no matter what. Now the returnees are not in a position to drive out the foreign influence. They don't have that kind of rule over the land. They can't just say, all right, all you people that worship Baal, all you people that worship these other gods, you're out. They can't do that. They don't have that jurisdiction over the land. But they can keep it from their own lifestyle. They do have jurisdiction over themselves. We may look at our, our, our own situation and we may not have the jurisdiction to drive out certain things from our land. But we don't have to let it come into our house. I don't let it have to come into my life. I can stand guard against those things. Verse 3. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. 
Now, Ezra had just left Babylon four months before. He had left Babylon. Babylon is not a God-fearing country. And he also had the, the Persians that taken over, and Persia is not a God-fearing country. He's used to seeing idolatry. He's used to seeing abominations all over the place. He left that. He was coming over here to Jerusalem. He probably envisioned his homeland as more of an oasis from the sinful culture that he had in Babylon. But no, <laughs> that is not the case. So not what he finds. He comes to this land and what he sees is that people have compromised the word. People have compromised what God's commands were. They have left them. And they're doing things that uh, he's shocked by. He is astonished. He's not surprised. He is in utter shock. He sees this. It says that he plucked out some of the hair of my head. I don't know about you, but I don't like pulling my own hair. He pulled out some of the hair of his beard. And then he sat down. We find out that he also had torn his robe. He's, he's frustrated. He was astonished at this, tearing his clothes. And he sat astonished, just sat there astonished until the evening sacrifice. Now verse 4 says that everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me. I'd assume, and it's an assumption here because it doesn't say anything about it in the record, but I'm assuming that Ezra, somewhere in here, began to speak the words of God, began to speak the commands that are in the word of God about this. And those people who heard it and said, oh, wow, we, I, I forgot that's in there. I didn't know that's in there. Whatever it might be. Uh, they assembled to him. There are some people who just don't care. But the people, it says, then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me. Well, those are the people that you want. You don't want those people that don't care. They're, they want them back on home to their foreign wives and husbands and uh, life goes on. So everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgressions of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Now, when you know something could happen, you're not astonished when it does, right? I know that this could happen, so when it does, I'm not astonished. You know, if a politician got up and said, we're raising your taxes, you're not astonished. You know the politicians do this all the time. Even ones who say, no new taxes. You still get some people who get up there, you know, a year later, and then all of a sudden there's a new tax. There's more taxes. People will, will say that you're not astonished at it. If you have a politician who promises you something and then they don't deliver, you're not astonished at it because you've seen these things happen before. What you get astonished at is when something happens and you had no preparation for it. It just, it just went on. Where did this come from? I, I was not even expecting this kind of thing to go on. Wow. You know, I guess if you're living over in California and you got 700 inches of snow, that could be reasoning to be astonished. This, uh, this is not what we were expecting. I wasn't expecting to have to go out and take 200 inches of snow off my roof to get ready for the next 100 inches that are coming. So the, when he says he's astonished at this and it affected him for the entire day, he's giving you an idea here what's going on. He had no idea this was going, this was going to happen. He apparently had walked in has spent a couple of days here, probably, you know, meeting some people that are, that are around, and still has no idea that this is going on. Not until this group of leaders comes and tells him about this, does he know. There had no word come back to Babylon when he was there, saying, hey, the refugees, they're compromising some things. That tells you a lot. That means there was no one among the people who had settled Israel, who had settled the land of Judah, there was no one who was so concerned about this that they would send a letter back to some of the leaders back in Babylon? How does that happen? Compromised in there. So he, he heard no reports about this back in Babylon before he came. He had no idea to expect this. Back in Babylon, apparently people didn't do this. 
back in Babylon, they're living in a foreign country under foreign rule, under foreign lands who have no respect for the word of God at all. And back there, they didn't do it. They did not compromise. They stayed with marrying people who followed after God. They didn't compromise this. And Ezra is now leaving the land of Babylon, coming to the land of Israel, Judas more specifically, has no idea to expect that that same attitude is not present there. And he gets there and, and maybe they know that they shouldn't be doing this. Maybe they concealed some of this because he does not see any hint of it for the four or five days that he's there. Maybe even more. They maybe they were actively trying to conceal the behavior. The only time you actively try and conceal the behavior is when you know it's wrong. You can't say that's what they were doing. Now, had people grown cold to the behavior and just never sent word concerning it? Never saw it as a problem? And so they just never sent any word about it? Well, there's a small group of people who see concern about it, and that's the leaders, but they apparently didn't have enough concern to send the letter home to Babylon or the people back in Babylon where they had just come from. Now, Ezra knows well the sins that led to the captivity. And boy, this has got to sound all too familiar. Wait a minute. We're compromising serving God? We're, we're bringing foreign people into the close-knit family? We're entering into covenant with people that don't serve our God, that are not in covenant with our God? We're entering into a marriage covenant with people who will not enter into a covenant with God? Hmm. Now, how many years has it been going on? I don't know. It's, it's probably been going on for more than just a couple of years. This has been 60 years in development. I don't know if this has been going out of 10 years, 20 years. How, how long it took them to fall into this? How long it took them to get to this point? But somewhere along here, babies have been born. Now, what happens when you have a husband and wife who serve different gods and babies are born? Especially if one of them is Jewish. There are certain practices that the Jewish people had with the babies that people of other nations did not have. It set them apart. It set up their covenant with God. So now what happens? Remember when Moses was married to Zippor and the sons had not been circumcised yet? Apparently she wasn't too, too much agreement with that. And when they're on their way after the burning bush, God's about ready to slay Moses because you have not entered into this covenant and your wife and her views have apparently won out over what I told you. And so Zipporah goes out and she circumcises the boys and calls uh, Moses a husband of blood. Remember that story? <laughs> and she wasn't too happy. It seems like she went back to home after that. Uh, there's probably a lot more of that story to tell than what we have in the Bible. But anyway, this kind of thing is going on. And we have it today. You know, even if you have uh, uh, people that still, marry, still, still worship the same God, if you have people that are Jewish, marry someone that is Christian. If you have someone that is Christian, marry someone that is Catholic. You've got some stuff going on with, with this because they want to do things a certain way. Even people who don't practice Catholicism, even people who don't practice Judaism, they still have certain things that they do along the way. You know, when we were, uh, when I was coaching basketball, we had a, a Jewish family on our team. And uh, in conversations with them, they had a bar mitzvah they invited Christian to go into. I think I told you that story before. But they didn't practice as, as Jews, but they would still do the ceremonies that were necessary for the kids when they grew up. So even people who didn't go to church, who didn't go to synagogue, who don't go to a mass, may still want to do the things that they feel that they have to do. And that's going to bring in conflict. Who's going to win on this thing? So who do you think has been winning in all these conflicts? with the people that are marrying to foreigners who serve other gods. So it's a bigger mess than what is being depicted here. Because children are involved. The raising of children is involved. 
how do we do we raise them to serve the idols? Do we raise them to serve the uh, go down to the temple? So Ezra's looking at this. We got this nice temple. God has blessed us with this great temple. We have been able to come here and do our own worship and and somewhat have some of our own law for our own people. And now we got people entering into marriage, having babies, and some of those kids in the family are now going out to the foreign temple and they're participating in the practices there because that's what mom or that's what dad is is, uh, is raised with and they're not leaving that. And so he's coming into this. So you can see why he's astonished. It's not just, hey, they marry some foreign people. No, there's a whole lot more things that are going on. Uh, he may be even asking, what about the kids that were born to these things? Well, you know, some of them, they come over here to the synagogue on, on the Sabbath, but they also go over to the foreign temple and they practice some of the things that are involved with the worship there. So he's just astonished. He's just actually floored at this. Now, both Ezra and Nehemiah were confronted with the sin of pagan intermarriage. We'll get to Nehemiah sometime down the road. But they both faced it. Ezra responded by plucking out the hair of the guilty. <laughs> You'll see that in Nehemiah 13.25. He plucked out the hair of the guilty. Ezra responds by plucking out his own hair. So something about plucking of hair, but uh, Nehemiah doesn't do it to himself. He does it to the, the people that were guilty. They were no longer intensely pursuing the purity of worship and sacrifice around their new temple, but they had grown cold. Can you imagine this? Seventy years you had no temple. Then you finally get, you go back to home and build the temple. You get stalled on the project. But after another 20 years, you have a temple. You haven't had a temple all this time. Many of these people had never seen the temple. Some had, but many of them had never seen it, never had heard the stories of worship around the temple. Now they get to practice the worship around the temple. And in a very short period of time, this worship has been corrupted. And it's been compromised. And Ezra sees this. No idea that it was coming. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, verse 3, and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Now I see those words carried away captive. Most of the people that had made the trip were not alive when they were carried away captive. Because you're now looking at a point 80 years from, uh, from that point when they were, uh, when they came back to there. And 70 years before that is when they saw the temple. And when they were carried away. So the people that were, that were there, they are no longer alive at this point with Ezra here. So when he says carried away captive, I think he is talking about carried away captive by the sin. Not carried away captive by the Babylonians. That would be my assessment because I don't think they lived that long. Now, back in uh, older Old Testament days, they did, but not at, not at this one. There are still those, though, that are not taken in by the sin. So I made this uh, note. How long does it take to grow cold to the things that displease God? How long does it take? So to get an answer on that, I went over to Matthew 24. Just a couple of verses here. Four verses I want to read with you. of um, Verses 9 through 13 in Matthew 24. Jesus speaking about the end times to the questions that the disciples had asked. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. One of the things he mentions here is persecutions would come. Persecutions would come upon the people in the last days. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Now, why does offense come next? Probably because people expected God to deliver them from trouble. Not deliver them in trouble. But if you read the book of Revelations, you will see that Jesus expected them to be in trouble. And he even spoke to John about the group that was there. He said, well, this is the group of the martyrs, the people who died in the tribulation. 
their number's not complete yet. More are going to be coming. He knew the trouble was coming upon them. But if you can get sold on some false doctrine, if you can get taught some wrong things, you can expect God to deliver you from trouble. And when you were not delivered from trouble and persecutions came, you can get offended at God. You can get offended at other people. You can begin to betray one another because you got offended at something that they did or didn't do to help you in your trouble. They begin to hate one another. Verse 11, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. This creates an atmosphere where false prophets will be received. Of course, God has His true prophets out there, but we don't like their message. Their message hasn't helped us get out of trouble. And God hasn't helped us get out of trouble. And I'm offended. So there's going to be a room for a false prophet, false teachers to come in and begin to give them doctrine that they want to hear that will make them satisfied with how their life is and what they expect out of God. Now, if they had the truth, if they had hung on to the truth, they wouldn't be open for this sort of thing. But you can see this is the pattern that's going on. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now, how do we know that we love God? Because we keep His commandments. So when lawlessness abounds, we're no longer keeping the commandments of God. We're doing what we want to do. Well, I don't think God minds if I do this. Well, I don't think that part of the word really matters anymore. I don't think it really holds application in this day and age. I don't... We come up with our reasons. So lawlessness will abound because I'm going to do what I want to do. Remember a time when lawlessness abounded in Israel's history? It was in the period of the Judges. And how many times in the book of Judges does it say, and every man did what was right in their own eyes? As Christians today too, we're doing what's right in our own eyes. Well, I think that I can just do, I think that God made a mistake and I wasn't supposed to be a girl or a boy. I just think, you know, well, if I love this person, I should be able to marry them. I don't care if they're they're a boy and I'm a boy. Uh, they're a girl and I'm a girl. I should be able to do it. We just, uh, we come up with our own laws. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold because everyone is just doing what they want to do because the law has not been taught, because the Word of God has not been taught, because the will of God has not been taught. The love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness will cause love to grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So, notice the pattern here. We got the persecution. Well, they had a persecution when they were doing the early building, didn't they? Now, offense, we're not told of any. But I would think that certainly the air is ripe. For them to say, we made this trip, we came all the way on out here to build the temple, we've been persecuted, and then we just know that the temple building stopped. In fact, they even took some of the building materials, it seems, and built their own houses with it. Seems like there's some room there for some offense to God. Well, God didn't come through for us, and some of them even came out there and said, this is just not the time to build the house of God. So it seems that there was an error where offense could have been there. It's nothing is specifically mentioned, but I can sure see some remnants of offense. There was there false prophets and teaching. More than likely, there were some false prophets and some false teaching that came out, and it may be the reason that Ezra picked up the mantle of teaching as a scribe. It may be that Ezra comes in and he sees there's false teaching going on, there's things that are being taught that have caused this kind of thing to go on and he took up the mantle of teaching the word of God because the people that were there were teaching false things. We don't, again, we don't know that Ezra started this. We have no record of scribes ever teaching until Ezra. Whether they did it before Ezra in that, that time frame that was, that was there, I don't know. But he's the first one we have that's a teaching scribe. They continue that ministry of teaching through that all the way up until the day of Jesus. But this may be why Ezra picked it up. Because the people that were there were teaching things. He may have sat in some of the group and heard them teach. What are you teaching? 
How can you teach that? Why are you not teaching this? The people don't know that this is in the law. The people don't know that this is the will of God. The people don't know that God did this or that God delivered them from these things. And so he is probably getting a little irritated at what's going on. And so he may have just picked up the mantle of teaching at that point. There was a lawlessness that is there because we see the disregard for God's word and God's law. God's law says you shouldn't intermarry with people that are serving foreign gods, but they did it. And love grows cold. Well, their love is growing cold to, toward God and people. We know that love is growing cold towards God because they were not keeping His word. They had a brand new temple. God had blessed them with it. A foreign king had paid for it to be built and commissioned it. And now Ezra is coming with more gifts for that temple to make it even more beautiful. God was blessing them. Put in your outline, when the love of other things is greater than our love for God, we will do the things that please what we now love. And that's what they're doing. Just like Solomon, he did the things that pleased all his many foreign wives. Now, 60 years had gone by since the temple work was done in complacency probably had moved in. Haggai's message said nothing of this sin. Zechariah's message said nothing of this sin. Likely this sin wasn't going on then. But somewhere after that, it picked up. So what kind of teachers did they have? Was truth even important to them? Did they seek sound teaching? I sometimes ask that question today, listening to some people. On uh, you know YouTube, you can listen to all sorts of people. And I listen to some of them thinking, is, is sound teaching not important to you? How can you teach this from the Word of God? How can you say that this is God's will when God's Word clearly states these things? That was probably going on in their day too. We know it was going on in Paul's day. We know it was going on in many of the days that were there. False teachers were constantly around. Now sometimes when life is easier, compromise is too. It's really easy for us to compromise when life is easy. At Babylon, there were foreigners, they were foreigners in a foreign land. There's a little more pressure on. But here, at home, they may not feel that same pressure. They have more control. And they can set the opportunity to deepen. I'm sorry, this can set the opportunity to deepen our understanding of God and His Word. But it can also set the stage to compromise it. For them, they let it set the stage to compromise the Word of God. And Ezra is astonished. Verse 5 of Ezra 9. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God to humiliation as it is this day. Now people had gathered around him. When he arose, he's in front of people. Now again, Ezra is shocked. Some of the people that are around him, these are people that were sensitive to the word of God still. These are people that responded to what the law said. The other ones probably just went home. The people did not respond as he did since they became accustomed or cold to the things of God. There were some who did, but for the most part, many of the people, they weren't responding the same way Ezra was. I put in your outline that one way that people respond when they become cold to a sin is to become overly zealous for ones they do give honor to. And they condemn those who don't have the same zeal. You see that with the Pharisees very, very much. How much of the law did they bypass? But there were certain things they were very zealous for and boy, they put you under great condemnation if you didn't do it the way they wanted you to or the way they felt like you should. Verse 6. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Now, ashamed and humiliated... I have one person who uh, breaks this down. He says, there is a difference between these two ancient Hebrew words. The first speaks of being ashamed. The second word speaks of the pain that accompanies the shame. 
That helps us understand that a little bit more. Now, Ezra says, our iniquities. Now, obviously, Ezra could have no part in what he wasn't present for. He wasn't there. He couldn't have had any part in it. He's astonished that this is going on. He had no part in this. But he says, our iniquities. He knows the covenant joins them in the good, but the covenant can also join you in the bad. So he doesn't try and find a way to be separate. He says, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we are kings and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plunder and to humiliation as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Now that words, that phrase there, to give us a peg in his holy place. How many have any idea what that means? I know I didn't. So I looked it up <laughs> to see what it meant to the Jewish person. What does this mean to the Jewish person of that day? Because what it means to the Jewish person in Jesus' day makes no difference. What it means to the Jewish person in our day today makes no difference. What does it mean to the people then? And so that's what I set out to, to try and find. I got this. To give us a peg in this holy place, the idea is that Israel once again had a safe position, a standing in God's favor and in his temple. In those days, houses didn't really have any cupboards. Can you imagine your house without cupboards? They didn't have any storage closets as we think of them. Things were stored on pegs set up all around the room. If something was on a peg, it was safe and secure, stored properly and ready for use at the appropriate time. So that helps us understand what was going on because we don't have pegs in our kitchens so much as uh, they did. Uh, we might have one or two pegs around, put some things on the hook, but we don't depend on them the way that they did. Ezra had just been at the temple for the first time ever. He heard that the temple was being built. He heard maybe some people who had come back from there. He was impressed with God's mercy and greatness. And he had given his people a place or a peg in his holy place again. And so that's why he's bringing that into this, this prayer. I think he's wondering, could the casual disregard for such a great blessing stir up God's anger again? We know from the word, how often does unthankfulness and ungratefulness act as a prerequisite to lawlessness and forsaking God? Paul talked teaches about that quite often. Verse 9, For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. But he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Ezra is so grateful. He is so grateful to God for the opportunity his mercy has granted in restoring this city and restoring this temple. But now he sees that God did that 80 years ago and the people responded with first off ceasing the work that God had sent them to do. He sent his prophets to encourage them and they listened to the prophets and they finished building the temple and then falling into sin while worshiping and regularly seeing the mercy of God. They have the temple. It's finished. Sacrifices are going on. Priests are offering sacrifices. Levites are in, involved in the service. The temple is busy. Daily things are happening. Daily things are being burnt. Things are being poured out. Things are, stuff is going on. They're see, they're right there. They're walking by it. They see it. They smell it in the air. Worship is happening. This is not worship to some foreign god like we saw in Babylon. We saw things smoking. We saw, saw things burning. We knew this is for an idol. Now we're walking by and we're seeing things done for our God. Done the way our God wants them to do. Done the way our God said to do. They're walking by. Every day they're walking by. They're seeing these things going on. Somewhere over the course of those 60 years while all this stuff is still going on while they saw the new temple. 
I began to be cold to the things that God had done. I began to be ungrateful for all that God had, had done. Maybe they looked at things they didn't have, things that weren't quite where they should be. They had a little bit of a wall, but they didn't have a great big wall. Nehemiah is going to come down later on taking care of that. Ezra mentions a little bit of the wall. It's not a wall that's going to protect them much, but they got, they got a wall out there. I wonder what astonished Ezra more, the sin of the people or the mercy of God despite the sin. Because Ezra is looking at this right now. He said, I was sent here by God. God opened up so many doors. He gave us favor back in Babylon. And the king sent me with gold, with silver, with money, with an expense account, with things needed to get this thing going even better than it is. God opened the door. He saw firsthand God opening the door for all these things. He saw God's deliverance on the way through the wilderness. He, he talked about some things that God delivered him from. He saw this. And then he comes down here and he sees the state of the Israelites. He sees the sin that they're involved in. And boy, what does he have to think about the mercy of God? God, you knew all this was going on. I didn't know this was going on. But you knew all this was going on. And despite the sin that they are doing, you opened up all these doors to bring all these things down here for this people. I don't know if he's more astonished at the sin that Israel is in or the mercy he now sees that God walked in. Would you, if you were Ezra, would you have some questions about this? God, why did you even send me here with all this if you knew that all this sin was going on? But God did. Now, as Ezra does this at the evening sacrifice, so it is in front of all the other people. He's not actively leading them in prayer, but he is giving them an example about how to pray for themselves. They have to know, Ezra, you were not even here. You did not participate in any of this. And yet, listen to your words. And so they would probably follow suit and pray like he did. Now, remember, you don't have to have everybody in the nation repent. God says, if my people that are called by my name, the people that are with Ezra, the people that still honored his word. Now, God didn't do these things because of the prayers, faith, requests of those in sin, but those who were not even a part of it. Ezra and probably some other people were not even a part of this sin and they were praying for these things and God moved on their behalf, not behalf of the people that were in the sin. Verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons. And never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. He's telling them, do not enter into these marriage covenants with the people of the land, that you may be strong. I think one of the things that the people here, the leaders in particular, is that they felt like we can become stronger if we enter into alliance with some of the people of the land and we can do that by giving them our daughters or our sons in marriage and having these things go on. But God says, no, that's the normal way. That's the worldly way to bring about this kind of safety and security and strength. That's not the way that I want you to do it. I want you to refrain from giving your daughters and giving your sons to people who do not worship Jehovah God. Verse 13, and after, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Less than we deserve. He said, I, I know what we were guilty of. I've read the stories. We deserved a whole lot more. We probably deserved to be wiped out. But you brought us back. He said, you have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such deliverance as this. Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us 
until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are, we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. As we recognize that the 70 years of exile, that was a severe punishment, but it was far less than what they deserved. And what they're doing now is pretty much the same thing that brought on the sin from the, the judgment from before. They could be jeopardizing all the mercy that God has poured out on them. When he says here at the end, look at verse 15. O Lord God of Israel. Just in case you're thinking of disassociating yourself with this people. Just in case you're thinking. I want to remind you, O Lord God of Israel. It's kind of in line with Moses, your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt when God tried to pull them off on him. Uh-uh, no, no, no. These are your people and you brought them up out of Egypt. God, I'm not taking them on. Now, there are no buts in any of this repentance that he does. There are no equivalents of the woman you gave me. Nothing like that in Ezra's words. Even though he was not there, he was not guilty. Boy, what a difference between that and Adam and Eve. They're always trying to blame somebody else. Ezra, he's, he's astonished that this is even going on. And yet he confesses it like he was right there. So what does this mean? That God knowing that they had broken his law and one that greatly led to their downfall that they would have entered into the same sin again. Had they compromised their life, their worship, their actions? What does it say about God knowing all these things, all these compromises that they had done but he still sent Ezra and moved on the king to send the gifts. Now, Ezra knows the king is expecting prayers. He's expecting petitions to be made on his behalf, which Ezra agreed to do. Does he now feel that promise is in jeopardy? My word, how can we come into this temple and make requests of God when so much has been compromised? We know that our country has gone against the commands of God is making many similar compromises the intermarriages would lead to. How do we see it when God extends His great mercy toward us with all these things going on? We look at our country today. How can God extend His mercy to us when all these things are going on? And lots of people want to prophesy judgment and, and things of that, but Ezra is in a very similar situation that we are. Now, how can we keep ourselves from the corruption in the world that is around us? we got the world around us. We're not even looking at the world as in China, Russia, all the other nations out there. We're looking at the world that we live in, the world right here. How do we keep the corruption that is in this world from coming in? They fell in this corruption somewhere over the course of the 60 years. They fell into a place where they became complacent. And they were cold to the things of God. Even though they're walking by the, bright, the brand new, beautiful temple. Walking right on by it. Seeing that God had opened the door. Brought them back to the land. Just the fact that God brought them back to the land. What an amazing thing that was. How do we do it? Gave you a little list right here. Tried to, to concise this. Keep it something that you can, you can remember. Here is the first thing that you need to do. And this basically we're following that list I gave you out of Matthew. Here's the thing that we need to do. First off, love trials. Love tests and trials. Know that persecutions and bad things can come to us because we live in an evil world, not because we serve an out-of-touch God. The enemy's going to try and sell you that he does not care, just like he did the disciples on the boat when he was thinking, do you not care? Just like he did with Mary and Martha. And Jesus didn't arrive in time for their brother before he died. Do you not care? God, God is one who does. He's very much in touch with us.
but the enemy is going to try and sell you on a God who doesn't care, a God who is not in touch. But if you get to the place where you love trials, you love tests, bring them on. You do like James said, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. You see, that's a mentality. If you adopt that mentality, you're going to have a hard time growing cold to the things of God. That's not an easy mentality. But you look at people in the, in the sports world. You, you look at people. I, I look at guys on the Eagles offensive line. Um, uh, Jason Kelsey is one. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy that man's attitude towards football. He just loves football. He does more than anyone on any, probably any other offensive line does. You see him far, far downfield, running on down the field, making blocks after he already made the blocks at the line. He sometimes is ahead of the running back and just going on because he loves the battle. He loves the tests and trials. He loves the things that are going on. I looked at uh, the other one, the, the uh, Lane Johnson. They said for two years, it's been two years since he gave up a sack, and this year he played part of it with an abdominal injury that he needed surgery on, and he still kept playing because he loved the game. You've got to love the game. You've got to look forward to the tests and trials. Devil, give me your best shot today because I am going to be better than your best shot. If you can get to the place where you love trials, come on, what kind of trial you got today? That all you got for me today? If you adopt that mentality, you will find that you have a hard time going cold to the things of God. That's the first thing. Love trials. Do what James says. Count it all joy when you encounter various tests and trials. Here's number two. Love the fight. Love the fight. All right, well, I know the t- tests and trials are coming. I love them when they come, but now you're in the fight. Love it. Love it. Don't hate it. Love the fight. I'm in the fight. We're here. If you lose touch with this, if you lose touch of loving the fight, you're going to open the door to being offended by that, at God. You're going to open the door that the, the evil one can sell you on some things. Well, God brought this on you. Well, God allowed this thing to come on. No, 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 no. Love the fight. Know that God has equipped you for the fight. All right, tests and trials are coming. I love it. Come on, send them to me. And then when you're in there, love the battle. Love the fight. Paul says you got armor. Use that armor in the battle. Love it. Get in there and love the fight. Don't give up on the fight. Don't get tired of the fight. Keep on loving the fight. Here's the third one. Love the truth. Love the truth. Guard against false teaching. It will compromise how you stand in the fight. When what is false enters in, our operation in mercy falters. And there's other things that will falter as well. We talked about those those two before. But love the truth. I got to get so much that I love the truth that every day I'm reading the Word. Every day I'm listening to people teach me the Word. Every day I am pursuing the Word. Every day I'm letting the Spirit of God talk to me about the Word. Every day I'm letting Him speak to me identify false things that I've uh, I've allowed to come in. Because you allow anything false to come in, it will affect what goes on. Just like in your car. Think of it from this way. If you allow anything but gasoline into your car, what will happen to it? I mean, diesel's a nice fuel, right? Diesel makes some cars run. How about if you put some diesel? I got some diesel. I don't have some gas. Have I got some diesel? Put some diesel in there. What will happen? It won't be good. Have us some kerosene. I got some kerosene. I put some kerosene in there. Well, I, I don't have any gas. I got some water. Put some water in there. What'll happen? Nothing good. No. You gotta, you gotta get the truth. You gotta love the truth. If you want your car to go, you gotta put gas in it. You gotta put good gas in it. And if you want your spiritual life to go, you gotta put truth in it. Don't allow anything false to come in. Don't listen. You listen to somebody and you're down in your spirit saying this is false, this is false, this is not good. Uh, don't keep going. Don't keep going with it. Sometimes though you're listening to something, I don't know this. This is all new to me. But in my spirit it's saying, yeah, this is good. Hit things that you're going to be fed on. Love the truth. Here's the next thing. Love God. Love God. 
How do you love God? Do His commandments. Doing what is false means you are keeping His commandments and therefore you're not loving God. If I allow false truth in and I start doing those things and going to be doing things that are outside of the will of God, it's going to tell me I don't love God. I'm going to be walking in a way that I don't love. Yeah, but I do love God. No, if you love God, you would do His commandments. You're doing somebody else's. Love God. Bring the truth in. Know what the Word of God says. And then walk in that love to God and do that truth. You love God by loving other people. You love God by serving other people. There's a lot of things that God has said in His will. This is what I want you to do. Go out there and do it. Shows that you love God. Here's the last one. Took me a little while to figure out how to word this one to keep it simple. But I put it out here this way. Love your blessings. Love your blessings. Stay mindful of what God has done for you. Always watch for His hand in the everyday and give thanks. Keep learning, worshiping, praising, praying, and applying what you learn. Be grateful for the gifts in your life and enjoy them for who they are. There are gifts in your life. God has given you teachers. God has given you friends. God has given you mentors. God has given you people to encourage you along the way. Love them. They are not perfect. They have their quirks. They have their hang-ups. They have their things. They don't quite do like you would want them to do. Love them. Love them. The enemy wants to get you in there and he wants to get you bothered by the little quirks of the gifts that God has given you. Don't ever do that. Don't ever let that in. You embrace those people that are around you. You embrace the people that God has given you. Embrace the people that God has put in your life to help you to learn the Word, to follow the Word, to stay with the Word. The people that encourage you when you're in your tough times. The people that pray with you. There have been, you can probably find some things, well, they don't quite do this. right. Well, I wish they wouldn't do this. Oh, they, but they, they do this and, oh, that just drives me crazy. Love them. Love them. The enemy is always pointing out the imperfections of those things, but love them. Love them. He wants you to, to look at your car and see all the imperfections instead of loving the blessing that God has given you in that. He wants you to look at the imperfections of your house instead of loving the blessings that God has given you in that. He wants you to forget the things that God has brought you through in the past so that you despair of the future. Love the blessings that God has given you. But God, you have blessed me here. Israel was supposed to love the blessings. God, you blessed us by getting us out of the Egypt. You blessed us by wiping out the Egyptian army. You blessed us by parting the Red Sea. You blessed us by feeding us. You blessed us by giving us water from a rock. You blessed us by delivering us from the enemy. The blessings went on and on and on, but all they could see was what was wrong. Love the blessings. Go over them all the time. We do prayer reports here every Sunday because it needs to be a big thing. You need to learn to love the blessings. You need to look for them every day. Every day, where is the blessings of God? What is God doing for me today? What is God helping me with here today? Look for the hand of God. When you see it, glory to God. Father, I thank you for what you did with that. I thank you for how this came along and and helped me. Love your blessing. The enemy wants you to see lack so you don't see their value and won't receive what you need from them. The enemy wants to see... We've got these teachers, these prophets, these uh, ones. I want to see lack in them. Well, they don't do this quite right. Take them for what they are. Enjoy them for what they are. Make make sure you know what they're what they're there for. I was listening to another Rick Renner series today. I'll tell you what. Every time of all the new postings are up there in Rick, guess what Rick is teaching on? Every single time. End times. I think the last six, seven, eight teachings I've seen from that are him behind a pulpit, that are newly posted up. He's teaching on the end times. A lot of times it's from the same, some of the same passages. I could look at that and say, well, I wish he'd teach on something different. Sometimes I do wish he would teach on something different, but <laughs> I am going to enjoy what he's teaching. And so I sat back there and we listened to this, this uh, one from today, and he taught on some of the same things from some of the ones I put up with you before. But that's all right. He is a gift of God. I enjoy the gift of God he has been in my life. Waking me up to see certain things in the in the Greek. That uh, as much as I love the Greek, he's helped me to see some more things in it. Love your blessings. Love the ones that you have in your life that are there to help you. 
Love them. Love the friends that God has given you. Yeah, well, they're always not this or the. Love the friends that God has given you. The Israelites here in Judah, they looked at the temple and they eventually didn't love it the way they should have. It eventually wasn't the same thing. Love your blessings. Well, Father, I thank you that you have blessed us in our life and you have given us the tools that we need that we do not become cold in the things of God. You've taught us in your word to love trials. You've taught us in your word to love the fight because we are equipped for the fight. You taught us in your word to love the truth. You taught us in your word to love God and we do that by keeping your commandments. And you taught us in your word to love your blessings. The things that you have blessed us with, the things you have poured out, we need to love them. We need to love the blessings that you gave us 10 years ago, 20 years ago, as much as the ones you give us today. We need to stay mindful of what you delivered us from, what you healed us from, what you brought us through. It's how you raised Israel. Remember that I did this for you. Build this monument. Remember that I did this for you. Because the enemy wants us to forget, to not love our blessings, to forsake them, to forget them. But we need to love them. Thank you, Father, that you can help us in these things and if we accomplish these and put them to practice in our life and stay mindful, we won't get cold. We won't fall off and begin to do the things like Judah did in the land that when Ezra came and saw it, he was astonished. Father, we want to love you. And we want to let that love that's in us continue to grow stronger and stronger and stronger. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.